Today I'm doing something a little different than my normal episodes. I'm doing an Ask Me Anything with my friend Isha Patek. On this episode, we wanted to see if Isha and I look at the host of things we face in and through our 20s differently. Me being out of them and her right in the thick of it. So I want to describe myself and how I felt about myself in my 20s. Well, for one, I really enjoyed my life. I had a lot of fun. I spent most of my 20s away from home, first living in downtown Seattle, which at the time and at my maturity level was probably the farthest I should have gone. And then the second half of my 20s in New York and then in Austin. During that time, I had four jobs. I met and married the love of my life. I moved into my first house, lived in many apartments, ranging from really disgusting to pretty good. Saw my friendships come and go, change and evolve. I also saw major changes around me, both from the things that I experienced, but also the things that the people around me experienced. Things like marriages, career changes, breakups, growing families, death of loved ones, infertility, and health issues with kids. And so often I saw people discovering themselves, reinventing, and becoming who they wanted to be. I want to say that I am a huge believer that I am always learning, regardless of how old I am. And I don't believe leaving your 20s is a rite of passage for any sort of wisdom. In fact, I often see and experience myself, so I will be the first to raise my hand, that the older we get as women, the more often we talk about how old we are, how decrepit we are, how our life is behind us, that things are no longer going to be the same. And in some ways, that can be true. Things are different as we get older, as our responsibilities and obligations change. I think it's in our best interest to remind ourselves that we always have an opportunity to learn and to learn from others who are younger than us and older than us. In fact, when you listen today, you'll see that Isha has a really strong grasp on things that I still have very limited knowledge about. And I hope this episode inspires you to think about all the different POVs we can have, regardless of age, experience, life stage, et cetera. So many of you have questions about relationships, love, career, finances, and friendship. And so we're tackling it all together. At the end of this episode, we do cover topics of sexual violence and abuse. So if you're not ready to dig into that today, please skip it or skip this episode altogether. In some ways, I was surprised with the level of specificity in some of your questions but also not surprised at all. I realize we live in a world where our nuances, our challenges, and the things that we face every day don't usually come with a manual or a way to tackle them. And for most of us, we struggle with finding our way, our normal, our fine through them. Oftentimes without a lot of support or even just a way to know how to move through them. And that's really not fine, is it? Hey, I'm Rachel, and this is the It's Fine Podcast. On this episode, I'm chatting with Isha Patik from the Turn Off the Ringer podcast to answer your questions about us, our experiences, and our 20s versus 30s perspectives on life, love, and everything in between. Are you ready? Let's get into it. I am at a very different stage in life. I am 23. I am 
not married. I live in New York City. I just started my first corporate career last year now. I just finished my one year at work like two months ago. So oh my very, phase, I know like very different phase in life and it's been really exciting. There's just a lot to say about one being 20 something years old and absolutely confused, which I know I'm not the only one who goes through this. Like every week I'm having an existential crisis versus then when I talk to mentors or people that have been in the space or the field for a while, they're like, hey, like you're doing OK, you're doing totally fine. Like you are where you're meant to be. Hearing that kind of perspective has always been helpful. And so I thought it'd be really fun for us to chat about the two different ways in which we approach the same questions and just life, because I feel like there's so much to say about the different phases that we're in. And that's exactly the kind of stuff I love talking about on my podcast. Yeah, and I'm excited to hear your perspective, too. So we had a ton of questions come in. We broke it out into categories. So I'm going to go ahead and get us started on the first category, which is friendship. Exciting. So the first question I got, and I molded some of y'all's questions together, is did your friendships with your single friends change after marriage? I'm also going to insert relationship, right? I've heard that friendship circles decrease over time and that there's only room for a few who genuinely reciprocate. Is that true? Yeah. Oh, my God. So very excited to answer this question because I feel like there's so much discourse, especially with the way women are socially framed to leave friends and always focus on the boyfriend and or like their partner and forget about friendships and things like that. And there's a lot of pressure to either be the perfect friend or the perfect girlfriend or partner, even when you do enter a relationship. From my perspective, yes. And as someone who's in a relationship right now, I will say they've changed for the better. My time became more valuable. Not that it wasn't before, but it just meant that there was a whole different dynamic that was also in the picture now. That comes with its own set of things that you want to do and things that you want to allocate to this person, which means that you have limited time for your friends. And with that time, then it became so important for me to be with people and friends that really felt like sunshine or filled me up and were energy givers as opposed to energy takers. One of the things that came up in this question was how is it different for you with your single friends versus your friends with relationships? And I'm literally air quoting this right now because I have my own take on single versus relationship. But how has it changed for you? I have many single friends. I've also had many friends that have gotten out of really serious relationships after I entered my relationship. So they're like newly single. And I've realized that with my single friends, my relationships and dynamics haven't changed that much or it isn't difficult because those single friends have never made me feel guilty about being in a relationship or guilty about wanting to spend time with my partner. I think the place it becomes a little tricky is when you have single friends that kind of want to monopolize your time or make you feel guilty or ashamed to want to hang out with your partner over your single friends. And they make you feel like, oh, you're not part of the girls anymore. You're not part of the guys anymore. Those kinds of friendships are a little harder to navigate. And I realize that those are also the kind of friends that I kind of didn't follow through with time, right? Like, Prior to being married, I was really single. So I was the single friend and I got married when I was 26. And so when I met Charles, up until that point, like I was the single friend and all of my friends around me either were in budding relationships, longer term relationships. My two best friends were in like very serious relationships at the time. And I was the single girl. And I think that being in that position, I've always been very conscious around how I care for and 
manage my relationships with folks who are single, whether that be by choice or because they're looking for their partner. And I think the th point that Isha, you made so beautifully is that we are so much more dynamic than the status of our relationship, whether that be like the careers you pursue, your purpose, your passions, your hobbies, your interests. What I have really benefited from in friendship is being able to have a variety of friends and also see myself as a person with many layers. So I think it's really easy as you move through stages of your life, right? Becoming a married person and really identifying as I'm a wife, I'm a, a married person, I'm a person in a relationship. And then I'm at a stage of life where I meet so many women who really identify as mother and as mom. And they have a really hard time talking about anything but their kids. And so something that I've been really conscious of or just as I evolve in my life is understanding that I am a complex and a person of variety, that I can have so much on my plate. And what that looks like is having friendships with people who have so much on their plates, who have different life experiences. I think that I benefit from that and that they benefit from having a relationship with me because I see the different layers of who they are. So I, I would just like keep that in mind as you evolve in your life and as you go through different stages. What does your circle of friends look like? Is it time for variety, especially if you feel like you, you're not having that depth of connection? I really benefit from like those perspectives and from folks who are single and from folks who have children, right? I think that's so important to just living like a really full life. But Isha, I think you said, yes, life gets complicated. And I totally agree. One of the questions that I got on was around like dating, but also being Indian and dating. And, and, and I think this is relevant to folks who are not necessarily Indian, right? What are your thoughts on putting yourself out there on dating apps versus including your parents in the process of finding your partner? Oh, what do you mean? Being on a like, dating app versus like an arranged situation? That's how I read it. Or like maybe having your parents help you pick out your spouse. Okay, maybe this might be a hot take. But also, to be honest, I've come to this realization after years and years was that if I was really 35 and... Again, caveating this answer with, I have very supportive parents that have never put like a pressure of marriage on me, have always asked me to pursue my own independent life and said, Isha, if you want to get married, that's your decision. You can make it whenever you want. So that caveat being in place, I think if I was like 35, 36 at a point where I was single, where I just had no luck dating or finding someone at all, I would trust my parents to make a solid decision for me. Maybe even before 35. Let's just say it's 30. If I really couldn't find someone and I really just wasn't clicking, I would be okay with my parents introducing me to people, not taking the decisions for me, but playing a little, playing matchmaker. I don't mind that only because I think I trust them because they know me, right? But outside of that, I think in like your early years, if you're young, if you don't have the pressure of getting married through others or on yourself that you're putting, I'm all for exploring on dating apps right like if not now when i think this is like the because i feel like dating apps are so much more than just finding relationships i think it's also such a fun way to get to know someone i personally never used dating apps so this is really rich coming from me because i have no experience to base this off of but i do have a lot of friends that have gone on like dating app dates and i've been on like literally maybe 1.5 dates from someone i met online after that just have not right not been my thing but the friends that i have seen go on these dates Sure, it's a struggle sometimes to find 
quality men online. I've heard it's a struggle. But also you get good stories. And at the end of the day, I think when you're 20, you just have to do it for the plot. Do it for the plot. Look, the best people in life are the people who have stories. And I will say, I did not date like crazy or anything, but I did go on several dates. I, which makes me sound so old, but I'm really not. I started dating like pre dating apps were like a thing, but they weren't like as hot as they are now. Right. Like I hear from my younger friends who are single and dating and even folks who are my age and and dating that like the only way now that you meet people is through dating apps. Like people are not people meeting people in the wild, which I find a little (laughs) odd. Look, like I'm all about being like the Carrie Bradshaw of my like sex in the city. And in my experience, I have done dating apps. I have met people in the wild and gone on dates. I met my spouse technically online, but it was like through my blog and like my content creation. But I think this really comes down to like how much you trust your parents. And do your parents really know you? So like I have a great relationship with my parents. Now that in my 30s, I have a great relationship with parents. I think my parents know me really well. But I think that the reality is, is that they would have wanted me to marry someone that was more like them which is not necessarily a bad thing, right? I ended up marrying, like my spouse could not be any more different than my dad. Like they are like on two opposite sides of the playing field, right? In terms of personality and character and just like the way that they function, operate, both incredible men, the two most important men in my life, but they are very different and they approach life very differently and they think about life very differently. So I think if you have parents that you trust and who are willing to ebb and flow in the process with you, that doesn't sound like such a bad option. Like your parents love you. They want the best for you. It eliminates some of the like annoying stuff that like I experienced. Like when I married my spouse, there was like this whole like qualification checklist from my dad of, oh, what family is he from? Where do they come from? Who's his Amachi's grandmother's pet's dog's maid's name? Like all these things because they that's how they feel like safe about the whole thing, right? So it eliminates some of that stress. And then you'd also know that you're like your parents will ultimately be on board. And I don't see anything necessarily wrong with that. But I also think you need to be true to yourself. And sometimes I think in trying to please and honor our parents, we lose ourselves in the process. And that's where I think you really have to think about what matters. Do I want to live a life where I am like the center of my plot or am I okay with being a side character or maybe they help me be a part of the plot that is very individual to like your relationship with your parent my experience in having my parents bring matches for me they were so not aligned to the life and what I wanted in my life but they were what my parents would have wanted for me and I don't think that's necessarily bad But the funny thing, at least in my experience, is none of them ever worked out because they're like your parents. They have a vision for your life. They want you to have X, Y, Z thing. That might not actually be like what your life is supposed to look like. And that's okay. My partner is not what my parents wanted to be with. My life is really beautiful. And they see how beautiful my life is. And they love my spouse. They love my spouse. They know that he is a good man and that he's doing his best. Is he the person that they would have picked? No, not at all. So I think that's something to consider. We're going to move on to the next topic, which is career and personal finance. What are some of the best financial habits someone can have in their 20s? Loaded question. So many layers. But I think 
and this is obviously as someone who's been working for a few years now in terms of the number of jobs I've had, but actually having financial independence post having a full-time career. But I think the best habits with money for me have been one, setting a budget for myself that's realistic. I think when you just start working, you can be, you don't realize what taxes look like. You don't realize how much things eat into your expenses. You don't realize how much rent actually looks like when it eats into your paycheck. So setting a realistic budget and allowing yourself to flex that budget is really important. So if you tell yourself, I'm telling myself, okay, I'm going to spend $500 a month, hypothetically. Sure, go for it. Try to keep that spending to a $500 limit. But at the same time, if you hit $750, if you hit $900, and you're consistently doing that, maybe the problem isn't you overspending, but you just having to maybe reevaluate your budget a little bit. Second thing is you can never start investing early enough. Oh my God. I've always been really fascinated by like financial markets in general through college and academia and my friends and family. And so I recognize that privilege in terms of access to resources and information. But if you can, I think investing when you are able to is so much more important than saving. I think one thing you don't realize is that you can be a good saver, but when you save money, your money because of inflation just loses value. And so the important question isn't how much can you save? It's how much money can you make from existing money that you're putting away? And that's exactly what investing does. And you don't have to be a high risk investor. You can be like a very risk averse investor, right? Have a very low risk limit and say, this is what I'm willing to risk. This is how much I'm going to put away to invest and then play with that money. And this is in no means like financial advice, but learning about the stock market, seeing which stocks you want to invest in. ETFs are a great option. High yield savings accounts. Like those are very safe places to park your money. The last piece of financial, like the last financial habit that's really helped me. And this might be a little extreme for people, but it really works for me because I enjoy being an investor and a saver more than a spender. So with that caveat for myself, when it comes to big purchases, I won't buy something unless I've wanted it bad enough for a year, at least. Wow. So, yeah. So an iPad, for instance, I wanted an iPad so bad. And an iPad is cheap by any means. And I knew for myself that, okay, I know I, I want it bad, but what do I really want it for? And every month for that next year, I tracked. I was like, okay, am I still going to want it? Do I still want it? Is this like in this scenario now? Would having an iPad like actually have made my life easier? And the answer for an entire year was yes. Now, obviously, again, caveat here is you can't do this with things that are trending. You can obviously do this with more sustainable, secure purchases, right? Like an iPad. It, it, it's not like a fashion trend, right? I'm going to have it for a long time. I've used my iPad since I've gotten it every single day for the past year and a half. Every single day. And I know for a fact that my Kindle, on the other hand, was significantly cheaper, right? But I didn't do this logic. I just wanted a Kindle and I bought the Kindle. I don't use it as much. Giving myself that year makes me recognize the things I really want and the things I know I can see value in. So for big purchases, I give myself time. And if I really still want it, and it's like a staple piece that I see in my closet in my collection for years to come, then I'll give myself a year to actually buy it. I would love to know your take on this as well, because I know you've probably had so much more experience with money, obviously. Let's say I'm not, I am not like Isha in any way. I love, just, I love spending money. <laughs> I love spending money. I have never been good, not necessarily not good with it, right? I have been financially independent really since I was like 22, 23, working independently, making my own money. I would say that 
for me, the biggest thing that came up as you were sharing about like you being more of a saver and investor is that what I really had to grapple with and understand is that everybody has different money values and Mm -hmm. I shouldn't compare my money values to other people's money values. Right. So as I was saying, like I enjoy spending money within reason. And I think one of the things that I learned, especially after getting married, because I would say I'm a little bit more risk averse with money, but my partner is so much more like he is so much more willing to spend money and he likes the good things, like the good things in life. Right. And I personally benefit from that. However, when I came into my marriage, I thought, oh, I I think I have a very patriarchal sense of the world. I'm like, my husband is going to manage the budget and the finances. And like, we're just going to chill. Tell me why a year, two years later, we went through like different ups and downs in our financial life. And we were in a lot of credit card debt, like a lot of credit card debt. And it's because my values around like saving and like thinking about the future are even different from like my partners. And so we had to have this conversation of, okay, Rachel is better at managing our personal budget, our finances, our day-to-day expenses, helping plan for the future. And Charles is the one who's willing to take big risks financially. Our house, for example, that we purchased, I wasn't necessarily thinking that we should live in this neighborhood because the tax rate was higher and there were like some different elements that would have made it like more expensive for us. But he really pushed for us to make this investment. And it's been a good investment for us. Like we've basically doubled our investment since we purchased it. And so there's a balance, right, in identifying your values. But ultimately, if you are a person who is managing your personal budget on your own, really think about what your values are. For some people, buying a really nice Gucci bag is a personal value. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? As long as it's within your means. And so then I would calibrate my budget and but and really think about how am I going to spend money based on what that looks like. Especially growing up brown, I think we all have this feeling of guilt and shame if we're like spending our money in a way that our parents wouldn't have spent their money. And I grew up in a home where my mom was wearing shirts that had holes in it. You know, like reusing Ziploc bags, repurposing old takeout containers, right? They were thrifty and they were like penny pitching. And that was the life that they were in. And that was how they saw how they should manage their money. And I think oftentimes as we come up in our lives and we grow up and we now have money and resources, whatever, we feel this like back of the mind guilt around how we spend our money and how we think about our resources. Most of us don't have to live like that, but we still feel the pressure to live like that because it's so ingrained into our identity. So first and foremost, I think you have to really establish your values and then build your budget and really think about what your budget looks like accordingly. The second thing I would say is literally just know what's coming in and what's coming out. I cannot tell you, I literally did not know for so long. And thankfully, I wasn't spending too much more than that was coming in. But over the last couple of years, I use a tool called Rocket Money, right? It's a $3 a month subscription. And that helps me understand. You'll be surprised like what kind of random things that are like, like whether it be like subscriptions, monthly things that like you might be paying for that you're like, oh, I bought that. You should, like you said, like on a whim, but I don't need that anymore. And then you start seeing too, like the categories that you're spending in. So like right now for us, like we're spending a little bit more in like our house because we're getting ready for our baby to come and things like that. And so then you get a sense of what is it that I'm spending a lot of money on and where are the opportunities for me to maybe subsidize or or improve. The last thing I'll say is that your financial status is, does not 
equate to like the person that you are. And I think really thinking through if you are comfortable in your life and the way that you spend your money and like maybe you don't have $60,000 in a savings account, right? But you have enough to get by and manage and like you're able to manage your affairs the way that you need to. I think the biggest thing for me was like debt and savings and investments. All of those things are very relative. And as you go through life, things just get expensive and unexpected things happen all the time. And I think when I was younger, I didn't really understand that sometimes you can get hit with just an outrageous medical bill and you have no idea how you're going to pay for that. Like sometimes we live in periods of debt, right? That is not a reflection of your identity. It's not a reflection of who you are. And oftentimes many of us can survive those things. We build plans around it. We think about how we're going to pay that off. But it is not like the end of the world situation. And that was a really hard lesson for me to learn because in life, I did IVF. I, we had bought a house. We did all these things that like we were racking up credit card debt. Some of it was like stuff we could avoid it, but sometimes it's not. I'm still like happy. I am so healthy. I am still able to live my life, right? Like you have to realize that these things ebb and flow, and it is not a reflection of your identity. I don't feel guilty when I spend money now because I never look at it as spending money. I look at it as, oh, wait, like what value am I gaining? Whether that's buying something, whether that's an experience, right? Like changing your mindset to also look at it less as less of a subtraction and more of an addition, right? Instead, because we a lot of times we think about money in terms of like, how much are we losing? Like, how much are we letting go of? We're not really thinking of, okay, but this is what I'm actually getting, right? And so if you make that decision to spend that money, then really prioritizing the value that you get from that thing or that experience way more than like a few dollars lesser in your bank account. So you mentioned a little bit about investing. And so that's something that like, honestly, I don't think a lot of women and men even, right, understand. Are there any tools or resources that you've leveraged that yeah. you would recommend to the audience on how to learn about investing? For me, as a woman, that has been a podcast called Girls That Invest. It's run by two South Asian women based out of Australia. Their podcast is such a great place for women to learn about how to break into the investing market, how to actually understand money and improve your relationship with money. So I think that's a great podcast to start as a woman of color. I would also look into... Robinhood, that's an app that really helped me navigate my investing journey. Again, not financial advice and everyone's opinions can be different, but that's something that personally really helped me. And then maybe just doing a little more research on investing buzzwords, right? Like what is an ETF? What is the stock market? Even just understanding it, even if you don't do anything with that information, again, it's about building trust in yourself, right? With how you handle money in your finances so that you don't have to depend on someone else for your financial independence or your financial status. I think that's really helpful as well. And I just want to say, so I am not very good at any of those things. I will say that even now, like I'm just scratching the surface on like investing and understanding ETFs, understanding like mutual funds. Like how do I even dig into that? One thing I want to say about this is that I know, and I, and I hate saying this because it's like, it's going to make me sound so not a feminist, not, not like with it, is that I think in the back of my mind, I just expected that I would marry somebody who would know how to do all these things. And that's really 
embarrassing. <laughs> I really want to encourage women. I've started to take like financial ownership in our home. I think that is something that we all as women should feel empowered to at least consider. Don't be afraid to buy the house on your own. Don't be afraid to like, if that, if you're in that position, like, why not? Because men are doing it. A hundred percent. And I think it's the reality of so many more women. You don't just have to be later in life and married. Like you can be very young also, like you mentioned, and have that mindset of, oh, I've always had or been in a structure where it's patriarchal or men have just always taken the front, like driving seat. But actually at that event with Simran Kaur, the author I was talking about, the co-host of the podcast, she was mentioning this crazy statistic about how one in the entire investing like pool in the entire world, women only make up like 20 or something percent, 20 odd percent of total investors. But she mentioned that in a business sense, when women make more investments, that they pay off more than when men make investments or some crazy stat like that. And that really made me think about how it is not that we are unable to make financial decisions. It's just that we've never been given that confidence or that place of empowerment, right? And so that's what it comes to. Money isn't nice things. Money isn't always value. Sure, it can be those things. But at the root of it, money is freedom, right? And you owe it to yourself and to your future self and to your future generations and kids and especially other young women who might come after you to give yourself that shot at freedom by empowering yourself with knowledge. So many women are afraid of it because they've never been exposed to it. And so starting to expose yourself to it and teaching yourself is the best thing you can do. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm so glad that you're sharing that perspective. And I would just encourage folks to think about it because don't let fear and your lack of confidence keep you from exploring that. So speaking of, right, our fears and the kind of the things that kind of hold us back, especially from the cultural identity, I did want to talk a little bit about two questions that came up and I think they're a little related. And so I'm going to read both of them. Why do family members get away with sexual abuse, especially in the Indian community? And why do Indians hide in shame about seeking counselors and therapists? There's so much sensitivity and nuance associated with it. I think it's scary. I'm sure we all know, as women especially, and women of color, we all know other women that have either been victims of sexual assault or have been victims of sexual harassment whether that was through family members or outside of. And it's a very difficult experience. So I think that's the first thing to establish, that it's a difficult experience as is. And I can only imagine, but for it to be within, like from someone from your family who you're supposed to trust or you're supposed to have that familial bond with, that blood relationship with, is it, it's the most disempowering thing in the world and it's really tough I think a lot of maybe the shame and I can't speak to it with the most amount of accuracy because I haven't experienced it or directly spoken to someone who's experienced it in this capacity any sort of sexual activity is always a taboo for women but not for men and so even when that sexual assault happens the reasoning for it is she probably did something did she go to their house? Did she give them hints? Did she wear clothing a certain type of way? What she was asking for it? I think that's a huge narrative that you hear everywhere. But I've noticed in 
the South Asian communities also that Indian families, maybe that is something that impacts that narrative. And also, one, what that does is it makes it tough for someone to talk about sexual, sexual assault, let alone sexual assault by a family member, right? Because also the other layer of it is women internalize that shame. They feel like it's their fault. They feel like, again, they ask for it. And when it comes from a family member that in most cases, when this family member is statistically older than the victim, that if they're part of the family, that nobody's going to trust or believe the victim, that they're going to believe the family member itself. And so I think that also might impact why a lot of people are so afraid to talk about it. And again, this goes back to the stigma around sexual activity for women, around sexual assault as well, because at the end of the day, also everyone is, a lot of families try to protect their family name and a lot of people may not even acknowledge even after a victim has spoken, that that assault happened, right? Because it's confirmation bias. They don't want to believe it. They don't want to believe that someone in the family was capable of something like that. So I think all of those factors put the victim in a space where they find that their story isn't important, which is so untrue. But it's a fact. That's what kind of, I think, creates that fear more and more of not being able to talk about it. And I think this links to your question about therapy as well. I think therapy is, such a stigma in the Indian community, but I think it's it's slowly starting to shift. I, I know in some parts of the country, but still it's tough. And my best friend is actually in school right now to become a psychologist and become a therapist and a counselor for young kids with special needs. And in our conversations, I've always realized that, again, a lot of that fear of seeking help is because there's a stereotype that if you do, that you're weak. I think there's a lot of, especially for men in Indian cultures, of this like patriarchal structure of you have to take charge and you have to know what you're doing. And if women and for women, this other side of it is you have to be submissive. If you have a problem with being submissive, then something is wrong with you. Like, why are you not serving food at the table? Why do you not want to work in the kitchen? And then when those things impact someone's mental health and they want help, other generations probably look down at them and say, no, but we did it. So why can't you do it? Like, like something's wrong with you. Like you're broken. And so then seeking that help has become a stigma almost because people feel like it makes them look weak, which I think is the number one thing that impacts therapy, like how much people seek out therapy. But then also I think the other part of it is, and this is sad but true, is this phrase of Lok kya kahenge, right? I think in Indian communities, like we care so much about what people think and that line simply just translates to what will people say? If I go to therapy or if my child goes to therapy, what are people going to say? And we care so much and place so much importance on the opinions of others and how we're socially perceived or how a family looks socially that we forget to care for that nuclear family. And I think that definitely contributes a lot to the stigma around therapy as well. But again, I want to definitely hear your thoughts on this, Rachel. So I'm a person who's experienced sexual violence from a family member. I am grateful that in some ways I was protected so I didn't experience the brunt of what that like the devastation of what that can look like like I was molested and I'm not minimizing my experience but I think that and this I actually shared this because I think it's important when we talk about therapy so at the end of the day I think that it's very easy for folks to hide and not share these things because 
we don't want to appear like the only ones who are experiencing these negative things. And my personal experience was that when I finally did share, and I, and I want to be mindful that sharing is a personal journey for a person who's experienced sexual violence or sexual abuse. And I think we all have to be compassionate to people who experience those, those incidences and their journey of how they share. But when I did share, I learned that the same person that had molested me had molested multiple people in my friend group, in my community, who were all around the same age at the, at the time of when that happened to me. And so the problem with that is that because it was hidden, because my experience wasn't shared and that those folks' experiences weren't shared, there was a perpetrator in a community who was continuing to do damaging things within one small community. And unfortunately, that is true in many communities, whether that be in India or here in the States or whatever, that happens. I think that the most important thing to consider is one, it's very hard for people to share their experiences. And especially if you are a young person experiencing that, to not have adults who will believe you or who will advocate for you, it's hard. And I think a lot of us grew up around adults who were basically kids themselves, who did not know how to manage through that. And so while it is not a great answer, I think that there is compassion that we have to share amongst folks who have been personally victimized and the people who are around them who may or may not have believed them, but were probably doing the best within their capacity. Does that make it right? Absolutely not, because we see that because of that hiding, more violence, more abuse continued. I think what I am grateful for now as an adult is that as we explore our son and his future safety, and like I have many nieces and I think about their safety all the time, actually, I think we can have more candid conversations with the adults in our life. And I think that there is opportunity for this experience that many young, like when I think about Gen Z's and millennials, uh, Indian women who have gone through these things, that there is hope for the future because more adults are sharing their experiences and more adults are talking to each other and that we are considering the safety of our children. And they are making wiser decisions, to be honest. Like, I remember when I was growing up, my parents would never let me sleep over at a person's house, right? As like people that they didn't know or whatever. I rarely ever slept, slept the night at um, other people's houses. And now as an adult, I realize like why they did what they did. So it's hard. I don't have a great answer for why, but I think that there is a lot more nuance to it and that it is not so simply black and white. Now in transition to why is it so hard for Indian folks to go to therapy? I think that a lot of Indian people say that their problems are not that big. And because their problems are not that big, I was just molested. I wasn't raped. I wasn't, you know, physically abused. Like when you think of the that logic, right? If I was talking to you directly and I told you that, would you be like, oh, yeah, no big deal? No. No. Yeah. In its own right, it's still a valid experience. Exactly. And I think a lot of Indian people are walking through the world saying it's not a big deal. My, I'm not getting, I'm not experiencing like devastation. I am not being abused like physically. I am not going through such difficult things. And that keeps us from pursuing therapy. And I think if there's anything that you take away from this episode is that 
your experiences, big, small, whatever, right? Like they, that doesn't matter. You wanting healing from whatever you're navigating and what you're putting your it's fine on is worth pursuing regardless of whatever it is, whether it be like insecurity about like your physical appearance to managing like your anxiety and stress, low grade depression, whatever it is, right? Those are all things that are worth advocating and fighting for. Those things are big. No one is going to advocate for you but you. So you have to choose to do that. But a lot of people will say, it doesn't matter. It's not that big, whatever. And then they live these very half empty, half glass full, whatever lives where they are not satisfied, where they are not fulfilled, where they just go through life. And I think we all know aunties like that. Like, I think we all know. And those are often the aunties who are comparing us to other people who are gossiping about us, who are saying things like they never address their challenges or like the things in their lives. And so all they have in their lives is pinpointing and, and pointing at you. And I think that is why it's so important to think about that. Think that you matter and that you are worth pursuing. But I think that's the biggest reason why a lot of Indian people end up not going to therapy. They're ashamed. Like, I think, Isha, like what you shared, what will people say? But they also don't think that their problems are big enough. And that I think at the core of that, that they don't really matter. Yeah. No, and I think it's so true because I, again, I think that goes back to the idea of one, if I've seen someone go through worse or if I've seen, um, oh, this is like such a bad example, but I'm going to give it anyways just to try and make a point. But when I was younger, if I never finished some food on my plate, the number one thing my father would tell me to, you know, understand, okay, Isha, you need to eat your food, is, Isha, you, we have the privilege of having food. There's kids around the world that don't, don't even have access to food in certain countries. You should be grateful and finish your food. And I understand that point. But then a lot of times that also gets translated to, in just in our community when we talk about problems, right? If I say, oh my God, I'm experiencing anxiety, I'm like trying to navigate my mental health right now. There's a lot of people that dismiss it and also say, okay, but there's bigger problems in the world. And I think that contributes so much to what you were saying of we don't validate our own problems either or identify that we need help. But thank you for sharing that. And I think that's, again, I'm, I, I think it's so brave and it's so powerful to hear from your perspectives how your healing journey has taken shape and I'm sure there's so many people that can learn from you. And I myself am learning so much about bravery and courage from you. We have so many more questions. P folks, thank you so much for sending in these fantastic questions. I have really enjoyed just like hearing Isha's perspective. I So much wisdom for someone like I think yep. young in your life. I'm so impressed by you. If you are interested in learning more about Isha, where can folks find you? Oh, yes. Thank you for saying that. First of all, I have my own podcast, like we mentioned in the beginning. It's called Turn Off the Ringer. Good to hear that compliment from you because my goal for the podcast has always been, how can I make wisdom more accessible for Gen Z? We ended up on a pretty hard and complex topic. And I want to first make space for those who are grappling with, quite frankly, the complicated ugliness of the cruelty of our world. I don't think anyone can give a satisfactory answer for those things. And so for you, as you grapple, I hope you find peace. And I want to encourage you to find other folks to help you navigate through that, whether that be spiritual advisors, counselors, really good friends, whatever that looks like for you to navigate through those things. 
If you're interested in listening to more of our advice on your questions, we're talking part two on Isha's podcast, Turn Off the Ringer. In her episode, we dig into her, her listener questions on love and relationships, career advice, and so much more. It's definitely a must listen. What I hope this episode did for you was inspire you to consider options, consider opportunity, and most importantly, not be afraid to advocate for whatever it is you need at this moment in time. As a reminder, always and forever, you are worth it. And if you needed me to say that to you this week, here's me doing it. Thank you, thank you, thank you for being with me today. It means the absolute world that you would spend time listening to this podcast. Share this podcast with anyone who you think could benefit from the message of not settling for fine anymore. Share it with your sister, your cousin, your friends, your mom, your dog, your partner. I don't care. I would love to get the word out about why we don't have to settle for fine anymore. I can't wait to see you again next week. Talk soon.